<clears throat> All these people going the other way, right? And here's him with no weapon going back into the battlefield. You're like, what is happening right now? You've got to be thinking in your mind, like, I'm going this way. Everybody's going that way. I don't have a weapon to protect myself, but I know this is what I'm supposed to do. He's a medic. Yes, I did not clarify that. Thank you for that. That's his job, is a medic, to, to, to help preserve life. And he's been doing that. But now, as everybody's leaving, nightfall comes, and he's there, basically on his own with no weapon. And he makes a decision, I'm going to go back out and grab my comrades, bring them back to safety, lower them down this ginormous cliff in, so that they can get cared for. And he does this throughout the night. He goes, grabs somebody, pulls them. I mean, he's a small guy, pulls them hundreds of yards, lowers them down, takes a breather, and goes back. And this is, this is kind of the, the pinnacle of the movie, if you will. Uh, the storyline is that just every time that he goes and does that, you hear him stop and say, Lord, give me one more. Just give me one more. And he gets one more, and he goes out there, comes back. His hands are bleeding. Like, he is toast. Lord, just give me one more. And he knew that that's what he was called to do. His convictions were strong. Even when faced with the opportunity to actually pick up a weapon and protect himself and his brother, he doesn't do it. And so over the course of this battle, he saves somewhere in the range of 75 lives. He's the only person in the United States military who's a conscientious objector to receive the Medal of Honor. It's a tremendous story. I encourage you to read it. Um, the movie's a little graphic if you, if you struggle with that stuff, but this is, this is, man, the heart of what we're talking about. You're probably like, well, that's a great story. What does that have to do with Genesis? We've been learning in Genesis up until this point that sin has entered the world and things are going downhill pretty quickly, right? Cain and Abel, murdering your brother, like that's, that's pretty bad, right? Guess what? It's only going to get worse. By the time we get to the end of today, things are, are just... As bad as they can get, it seems like. And yet, we have these names that kind of stand out in the scriptures, names like Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah. We're going to get to some of these names. These are the people that we see staying strong to their convictions, knowing that what they're called to do is a higher priority than anything else in their path. So basically what I'm trying to draw our attention around this morning is that we are called to stay the course. Stay the course, even when everybody else, the entire world is going the other direction, you stay the course because you know what you've been called to do as a Christian, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll dig in. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the, the opportunity just to gather this morning freely to worship the name that is above every name, Lord, the name that gives life and hope. Lord, you, you guide us, Lord. You sustain us. You give us all that we need to stay the course, to, to live out our faith boldly and consistently, Lord, we can't do it apart from you, and we don't want to. We need your help. And Lord, you've given us your holy word. Lord, and we look at it this morning, and we see glimmers of hope. 
But we see faithful testimonies of people sticking to what they know is right. That doesn't make them perfect by any stretch of the imagination, Lord, but you don't require perfection, you require obedience. And we want to walk obediently as we look to your word for help this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I anticipate there's going to be a lot of questions this morning um, as we get into some of these things in chapter 6. If you have any questions, you can text them to that number. I'll tell you up front, there are probably questions that we're not going to answer today. Um, So we're going to kind of defer that you get into some of these things in your life group if you're able to do that. Um, Because there are some really tough things that we're going to look at this morning that may not make a lot of sense to you. So we ended last week toward the end of Genesis chapter 4, so we're going to pick up and close out that chapter. So if you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, that's probably in the first 10 pages of your Bible, I'd imagine. Genesis chapter 4, I'm just going to read 25 and 26. It'll be on the screen as well if you need that. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So even in this short span that we've hit so far of the Bible, there's been some ups and downs, some peaks and valleys. And as we continue through the narrative, you're going to see that there's a lot of peaks and a lot of valleys. And it's, it can be a little bit overwhelming at times. And we can see really how much of a struggle it can be for the people of God to actually stay the course. Um, So what have we seen that's been tremendously good? A good peak so far is God creating the universe, right? Spoken into existence. That's kind of a peak, don't you think? That's a high valley, a high peak that we want to celebrate, that God did this thing. Of course, you turn the page and then Cain murders his brother. So we're like, right down to the bottom. It's like, great, thanks. Um, Way to go, Cain. But guess what? Today, we have more peaks and valleys. Um, it's, it's no accident that the narrative of Scripture is like this, because life is like this. Isn't it? Right? We want to look at the Scripture and say, this, this actually is practical for me. These people are actually going through things that I've gone through. They're not unique in any way. More peaks and valleys, right? So we've been following sort of this magnification of sin through the line of Adam on Cain's side. Now there's a second line introduced, and we saw that at the end of chapter 4. I just read it. Adam and Eve have a third son, and what's his his name? Back up from Enosh once, right? It's Seth. Seth is next. Yep. It's okay. So in the language used here in these two verses, it kind of directs the reader to understand that God has provided somewhat of a replacement for Abel. Remember, Abel was acceptable and pleasing, and his offering was acceptable and pleasing to God. So now Seth is brought into the picture, and as we're going to see, his descendants are presented as the opposite of Cain. In fact, there's a huge indication of this shift. Even what I just read Something should have sparked and be like, oh, look at the end of 26, 26b. Put that up on the screen if you would, please, Jimmy. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Did they do it before that time? No. 
So the God has been absent, <laughs> and it's pretty evident, right, in what we've seen in Cain's life. So this is a game changer, because honoring the Lord has not been a factor up until this point. And so we have this glimmer of hope, sort of this peak again in the narrative of verse 26, that people are starting to call on that name. Thank you that they're doing that. And then we transition into a, a genealogy of this new line from Adam to Seth, and then all the way down to Noah, which we're going to read now. So if you want to flip a page over to Genesis chapter 5. And I'll encourage you, as we go along, there'll be large passages of Scripture that we won't read because we just won't have the time to, but I'm going to read all of this because it is, it is pertinent. So stick with me in Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared lived, had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah lived, had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so we begin a new section here. Um, we used the language last time of a toledote. It's just a fancy word to say this is a section that's beginning now. Uh, up until this point, it was the narrative of the creation up until the last, uh, the ending of chapter 4. Now we begin a new section. Um, you read it. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So now we're going to carry this new section all the way through here. Begins with a brief recap of creation, right? Man being created in God's image and likeness. Just want to make sure that we're kind of bringing the whole story back into the picture, then that God blessed humanity. But look at the genealogy. What stands out from this somewhat repetitious 
series of sentences. What repeated word catches your attention? Died, right? It's at the end of every line. Thank you for paying attention. That's very good, right? Well, since I've got your, um, your attention, Treehouse, there's a few of you in here, um, you will see that the end of all those lines end with he died. But there's one that sticks out that doesn't have that language, right? We have thus all the days of Jared were this and he died. Thus were all the language of this. He died, he died, he died, he died. Can you put up verses 23 and 24? Oh, go back one. There we go. 23. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. That was the normal language of everybody else. Then one more. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What? What, what does that mean? If he died, then they would have just used the same language. He lived such and such years, and he died. But he didn't use that language. So what is going on here? This is one of those places that we can sit and talk for a long time and never really get to any super clear conclusions, necessarily. Um, we'd probably have more questions than when we started. But so here's what we need to know. The language here tells us that Enoch did not die that God took him from the earth into heaven. How? Some godly way that is way beyond us. No idea. But let's look at Hebrews real quick, 11.5, because that expands on this a little bit. It should be one of the ones down there, Jimmy. Hey, there we go. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. He's one of two people that we read about in the scriptures that did not taste death. Does anybody know who the other one was? Elijah. So we have Enoch and Elijah. Some people think that these two are the witnesses, there's two witnesses that are talked about in Genesis chapter 11, I mean Genesis, Revelation chapter 11. You can go read Genesis, Revelation <laughs> chapter 11, right? And it talks about these two witnesses who actually do eventually die and that are resurrected again, but that's for another conversation. What we learn is that Enoch was walking with God. That's the takeaway here. What does that mean? It's a metaphor used to describe that his life was dedicated to following after God. And the reason that stands out is because not many people were doing that. Not many people were making that decision to faithfully follow after the Lord. In light of all of the increasing evil and darkness coming on the earth, Enoch makes that decision and God separates him out, calls him up. But then the genealogist, it just keeps on going. It's like that was a little footnote. Like, let's, let's keep moving in the genealogy. And then we quickly arrive at a familiar name. What's the name that we learned last week that we see again here? Lamech, right? We called him Lamech because he's lame. <clears throat> this guy, different, different line, different outlook completely. So we're going to contrast now 
the Lamech from Seth's line to the Lamech from Cain's line. If you remember back, Lamech at this point in Cain's line is the first person to destroy God's design for marriage by taking multiple wives. And then he kills a young person for basically like bumping into him is what it kind of comes down to for no apparent reason. This is the Lamech that we read about in Cain's line. But now we see a different thing going on here. Seth, all the way down to Lamech, who then we see fathers who? Noah. So Noah is described in verse 29 as someone who's going to bring some sort of relief. We don't know exactly what that means at this point, but there's some hope that this Noah is going to do something of significance. And if you sneak down in your Bible to chapter 6, verse 8, and you want to get a spoiler, Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Right, we haven't gotten there yet. <clears throat> but this is an interesting parallel between Keth saying, goodness, I can't talk today. I need some water. That's what it is. Between Cain and Seth. And what we should glean from all this at this point is that there is a purposeful distinction between these two lines. And it becomes very clear now that Seth's line is the godly line. And Cain's is clearly not. Did God promise that there would be some fruit born out of this godly line eventually? If you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we talked about, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Remember we talked about that being the first promise of the gospel. How out of the line of Eve, the crusher of Satan's head is going to come. And who's the crusher of Satan's head? Who is the crusher of Satan's head? Say it it one more time with gusto. Jesus crushes Satan's head, right? He defeats sin and death. That's the promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And if that's the case, then from Eve all the way to Jesus, we have to make a connection through the generations. If you go back and study Luke chapter 3, you will read from Jesus all the way back through many, many, many generations back to Adam. You can follow the dots all the way through. That's why this is so important. We're at the very beginning But I I encourage you, go back and look at at Luke chapter 3, and you will read these names, Enosh, Mahalel, and all these names that are hard to pronounce. You'll see them, boom, boom, boom. This line is important because it ultimately delivers on God's promise for Jesus to come into this world. Now, if you know, you're Satan. You're not, but just pretend you're in his head. You've been told that at the end of this line, somewhere, somebody's going to be born that's going to crush your head. It's going to kill you. What does your main objective now become? Stop the line, right? If you can stop that line from happening, then that one that's going to come will no longer come and you don't have to worry about your end. That's exactly 
what we see happening through the entire story of Scripture, even all the way up through Jesus and Judas and all the ways in which that comes about. This is hugely important. But in spite of Satan's efforts, we can be confident that no matter what, God will make it right. He will not let his promises fail. So the genealogy ends with Noah fathering three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. One of those three will continue the godly line that continues on to the birth of Jesus. But then we come to another low point in the narrative, perhaps the lowest point in human history. And I want to look as we flip to the next chapter of chapter 6. I want to read verses 1 through 8. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Deep valley. <laughs> We're at the pit. <laughs> We're at the very, very bottom. Population is increasing. Sin is intensifying. Keep in mind now, We've covered, depending on who you ask, between 1,200 and 2,000 years of history at this point. There are millions of people on the earth. Some say billions. There's a lot of people. And there's a lot of problems. For God to say that the heart of every man is only evil continually, to the point where he wants to just blot everybody out, that's, that's bad. In these short eight verses exists some of the most challenging words in the Scripture. Challenging not only to translate and interpret them, just the language there is very difficult, but the content they contain is also very challenging. So there's... there's no way that any of this that we're about to cover is comprehensive in any way. It's not meant to be that. In fact, it's meant to be the opposite. It's meant to kind of just give you a little bit to want to go back and study this for yourself. <clears throat> Mark, Mark gave the example of, of Sam's Club. We'll, we'll change it to Costco. <clears throat> Costco samples, right? For some people, it's meant to be a meal. <laughs> they try to go everywhere they can, right? But that's not the intention, <laughs> The intention is for you to get a little bite and be like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. I'm going to go back and get some more of that. Okay, this is, this is a Costco sample right, of what some of these topics are because they're deep. 
<clears throat> Real deep. All right, so we're just going to dive into it. You ready? All right. Chapter 6. We're going to look at a couple of things. The first question you need to explore comes out of verse 2. Look at Genesis 6, 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, the first question you need to ask is, who are the sons of God? Is it overly obvious from the text that we just read who the sons of God are? I'll answer that for you. No. It's not overly clear who they are. <clears throat> so who are the sons of man, or sons of God, rather, that took daughters of men to marry them and procreate? That means have children with. I'm going to give you two of the leading viewpoints in who the sons of God are, because this is, this is important to understand the context of what's happening here. First, the sons of God, according to this viewpoint, are the descendants of Seth. Now, is Seth the godly line or the ungodly line? The godly line, right? I'm trying to include some of the treehousers with me, but I'm really just helping all of us out, right? Seth is the godly line. So, <clears throat> since they're set apart as the godly line, as opposed to Cain, then it seems logical that this refers to them as the sons of God. They're the sons of the godly line of Seth. That make sense? Yeah, I mean, sure. But as we can see from verse 5, something in this behavior is very wicked to God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Something that was going on here in this relationship was not good. Do you think marrying godly sons is good or bad? I mean, it seems like there shouldn't be any problem with that, right? So the second question you need to explore is what sin is happening as a result of verse 2? Sons of God marrying daughters of men. So in this viewpoint, the sin has to do with the identity of the daughters of man. So again, there's a direct contrast between the sons of God and the daughters of man. So these women, these daughters of men, can't be of the line of Seth because he's already separated them out. Sons of God, holy people, daughters of man, not the godly line. So their viewpoint is that these daughters of men are people outside of the people of Seth. There are other tribes in the area, other people. So the sin is intermarrying with people outside of the godly line. As you continue to read the Bible, you'll see that this is a big deal. You are not to marry outside of the godly line of God's people. And this will eventually bring a lot more sin as we continue in Genesis. And so the first point of view here is simply that these, these sons of God are descendants of Seth and that their sin is marrying the daughters of men, people outside of the line of Seth. That's the first viewpoint. Does that make sense? It's fairly logical. I guess you can follow that logic. <clears throat> okay. Now, the other leading viewpoint. And here's how you can get such diametrically opposed viewpoints is language. Language is a very important thing in the Scriptures, obviously. Um, in case you didn't know, the Bible was not written in English. 
Yeah, sorry. Um, <clears throat> sorry to inform you that. So here's the other leading viewpoint, that the sons of God are fallen angels. Where does that come from? And let me tell you, if you've never come across this passage or what we're about to cover, it, it may blow your mind that something like this might even be in the Bible. I'm just giving you a kind of a precursor here. So here's their perspective. Perspective. The term sons of God, as we see it in Genesis 6-2, is only found five times in the Bible, exactly as it's written in Genesis 6-2. And every one of those five times it's written in the Bible, it means and is translated the exact same. And it means angelic beings. That's what sons of God in the language here, B'nai Elohim, means. It means angelic beings. So keeping with this strict use of this phrase, they argue that it could not mean anything other than angels because it's never been used to describe anything else. And then they bring into account two New Testament scriptures that seem to support the idea that fallen angels, meaning they were no longer obedient to God, they left heaven, came to earth, and cohabitated with women. How many of you heard that before? About half of you, maybe less than half. For those of you that have not heard that before, how are you liking that? <clears throat> You're like, nope, let's just keep on going. We'll just talk about the, the sons of Seth. We'll just go with that. That sounded pretty good, right? But I want to I look real quickly at one of those scriptures that this camp kind of uses. Uh, it's going to be Jude verses 6 and 7. Throw that up there. Maybe. Nope. 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 <laughs> Jude 6 and 7. Look on the left-hand side. There we go. This is Jude talking now. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling place, or proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So leave that one up for a minute. So from verse 6, angels leaving their proper dwelling, that seems fairly straightforward. They were in heaven, they're supposed to be there, and they left. That's essentially what Jude is saying in verse 6. But then he goes on to draw on this famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? By saying, these angels that left their proper dwelling place, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So the parallel that he's drawing is, just like they were doing weird unnatural sexual things in Sodom and Gomorrah, those fallen angels that I just talked about in verse 6, they were doing the same thing. And what would that weird, unnatural sexual thing be doing? Angels cohabitating, co procreating with human women. So you can see how they can pull that scripture. And from Second Peter as well, there, there are more. We're not going to get into that. <clears throat> 
So in other words, these sons of God are fallen angels who defied God, left heaven, came to earth to marry and have children with women. And the second question I told you to ask is, what's the resulting sin? Well, I think that one's pretty clear, that they're destroying God's design for marriage between one woman and one man. (laughs) So that just completely obliterates God's design for marriage. So that's the sin that we see there. So this is the second main viewpoint. Now, at this point, you probably have lots of questions, right? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, yeah, whatever, I'm good. I'll go with the first view, or maybe I'll go with the second view. These issues, if you want to call that, there are many throughout the Bible that you'll come across. If you really study the Bible and you read through from the beginning to the end, you'll come across some of these things, and, and it, will, it will challenge you. It's supposed to. It's not supposed to rattle your faith. It shouldn't. It's just important to know that these things exist and to do the work of, of reading more. Like, what, what do I believe? And so that's our challenge to you. I know Mike's group on Friday night is going to talk about some of this. I think our group on Wednesday is going to talk about it. I would encourage you to continue to have these conversations as we go. But we've got to move on. Taking too long on that already. In verse 3, God makes this interesting statement. Uh, in, in Genesis 6-3, he says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days, shall be 120 years. Now again... Depending on how you read this, there's two possible ways that you could read this. Both have to do with how much sin has entered into the picture and how sinful man really is. So one camp is that God says, enough. I'm, I'm going to limit the amount of years that a human being can live to 120 years. That's it. Because at this point, we're talking like 800 years, 900 years. People are living for long periods of time, right? So some would say, nope, that's it, 120 years, no more, not living beyond that. That's one, that's one view. The other view, still having to do with sin, is God saying, okay, I'm done, and in 120 years, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to give you 120 years, essentially, to repent, to come to your senses. There's a, there's a measure of grace poured into that. That's kind of my viewpoint on this, is how I see the language supporting that. Um, So, just so you know. Because if you continue to read on, there are many other people that live beyond 120 years. And there's other things that support um, that viewpoint. Um, Either way, this is a response from God to sinful man, which will ultimately culminate with the flood. Okay? All right. It's like one thing after the next. Now we go to verse 4, and we talk about Nephilim. This word is translated giant. It's a transliteration. There's no direct translation. And I don't think it means like jolly green giant huge, right? Not like Jack and the Beanstalk, like ginormous. Just exceptionally large people. Yeah, like Goliath, sure. So the Nephilim are, are, are thought by some to be the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They came together. So clearly their offspring would be something crazy like giants, right? But the challenge with this text really is determining how the order of events described impacts the interpretation. Because if you read it just straight up, 
um, it can give you multiple ways of, of, de of interpreting, interpreting it. Are the offspring from verse 1 these giant Nephilim? Or are they just giants that happened to be on the earth at that time? I don't know the answer to that question. I'll leave it to you to determine. I, I have a viewpoint, but I won't bore you with my viewpoint at this point. I have no time to dig into Nephilim and giants and are they the procreation. At this point, you're like, what is happening in Genesis chapter 6? Like, what? Why are we even talking about this? To me, what this should do is overwhelmingly communicate to us just how wicked and fallen and destroyed the earth is. Like, I think that's the point of all of this. It's like, we are beyond anywhere we thought we could possibly be. Now, we're talking about angels and women and giants and, like, what is happening? To the point where God would be like, So the section is going to come to a close here. <clears throat> and the reality of the situation should really hit home for all of us. The state of humanity had come to a point that grieved God in ways that we can't fully understand. So can you put up Genesis 6, 6 and 7? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. I am sorry that I have made them. That's hard language. So the ESV translation that we just read of the word regret is not in any way communicating that God messed up and that if he had to do it again, he would do it differently. That's not what we're talking about here. He's heartbroken. And these words describe his emotional anguish. That's what it's communicating to us. God's pain is in the depravity of man, not in that he created man. He's looking at the result of their sin. And that's an important aspect of our God that we need to understand that the sinful behavior of man has a profound impact on God. And yet, in spite of that, he still loves us. Man, that should communicate the depth of God's love for us. If he can look at that Genesis 6 picture and still love, it should be fuel for us to stay the course. And as difficult as it may be to wrestle with the idea of the flood being an expression of that love, which we'll talk about next week, it's also an act of godly judgment that God would blot out man from the earth. And, and like I said, Daniel's going to cover that more of next week. But here's the culmination as we wrap up of several key topics coming together that don't really mesh that well. We have this incredible blessing in God. There's this explosion of growth isn't that what God told Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. We're going to get to that. Jimmy, leave that up there. Right there. Leave it right there. Fill the earth. So here's a huge blessing of all these people. 
peak mixed in with tremendous, huge, sinful violence and ever-expanding sin. So we go from this huge peak to this incredible valley. And then the promise of hope and being delivered out of this through a man named Noah. So we're not at the peak yet, but there's at least a hint. You're standing in the valley going, man, there's shadows everywhere. Is there just at least a glimmer of hope somewhere? And he gives that to us in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So I just want to cover <clears throat> a couple of three things, really, of staying the course. The first one, you can throw that up there. The sinful ways of man will not overthrow God's plan. Right? We saw Cain try to get in there and mess that up. His generations to follow that did mess up God's plan. We see all the generations after leading to the point of total destruction and sin and evil did not destroy God's plan. Then we got <clears throat> what I just said, that the sinful behavior of man has a profound impact on God, and yet in spite of this, He still loves us. That's an encouragement, family. Because I know there's some people in this room that wrestled with, I'm not good enough. I, I, God can't love me. He doesn't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. Does it have a profound impact on him? Yes. Does it grieve him? Yes. Our sin hurts him. Yet in spite of that, he loves us still. Praise God for that. And then the last one, if you, if you got that one? Keep your focus on God. Even if the entire planet goes the other direction, stay the course. That's what we see in, 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 at this point. We have one name highlighted as finding favor, Noah. And I don't want to give too much away next week with who is going to be preserved on that ark. But essentially, one name. The entire world is going the other direction, and yet here's Noah staying the course. That's motivating to me, that, that he could do that. I mean, you might be looking around the world right now and going, this is just as bad, <laughs> right? God has completely been removed from the world. We have divorce is just rampant inside and out of the church. Marriages are being destroyed. Sexuality is anything you want it to be. I mean, you go down the list. We've got these health crises, natural disasters. I mean, you, you name it, it seems like, man, how is it going to get any worse than it is? Can we even stay the course? On our own? No. Not at all. We can stay the course in following after the Lord with the Spirit of God leading us. And that's the only way. We've got to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in all of this. So as we close in this, here's my encouragement to you. Let's walk closely with God. That's the only determination in Enoch's narrative, that he walked with God. 
He walked in obedience. Like last week, he submitted his heart to the Lord. So let us make the decision today to stay the course and attempt (laughs) to be counted among the Seths, the Enochs, and the Noahs of the world today. Because it's very evident that a majority is going that way. And we could easily get swept in the current and go that way with them. Or we can stay the course and follow after the one true God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we are desperate for your help. It's never been more clear, Father, to me, how much we need you. It gets more difficult every day to stay the course and to follow after you. But Lord, I'm convinced that that means we need to surrender all that we have over to you. Because if we make any attempt, Lord, on our own, we will fail. And there is the possibility of us getting swept away. Lord, we need to be rooted and grounded and anchored to the truth of the gospel. Lord, help us to look to these chapters and not dismiss it or become confused to the point of of just walking out, having not received anything. Lord, we, we, we need to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us that focus to push beyond some of the difficult translation issues. Lord, there's just a lot of things that are hurdles that I think the enemy uses as hurdles to keep us from the ultimate truth. So let us just wade past that stuff, Lord. Move beyond it quickly. It's not that we ignore it, Lord, but that's not the, that's not the important truth that we need to glean from today. The important truth is that we stay the course because you stayed the course. Lord, you promised at the beginning that you made a way. You've made good on that promise in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, shedding blood for us that we might be forgiven of the sin in our lives. Lord, we just want to fall in obedience and live the life that you've called us to live. We desire to look different than the things around us. Lord, what a privilege it is to be called different. I don't want to be like this world. I don't want to fit in. God, let us be that light in the darkness, that beacon of hope, and help us to stay the course. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.